So right now, we just say, Father, we let go of all of the things that we've partnered this week that aren't of you, and we are sorry. We're sorry for joining in with the disappointments, with any pity, with our pride getting in the way, with those little disagreements that we've had with our brother or sister this week, with any slightly annoyance that we've had with our boss or our teachers. And we just say we're sorry. And you call us to go deeper and deeper in with you. So we just let that all go at the door of your throne room. Because when we enter in in praise and worship, we want to do so freely as beloved children of the Most High King. <laughs> yeah. So, Father, thank you that you know everyone here. Thank you that we're all here to gather and to know your name and to bring you praise. And, Lord, we just say, kingdom come this morning. May we experience a taste of your glory. We are going to continue on our journey through Luke. Um, so David Ingle was with us last week and as we started looking at the beginning of um, John the Baptist as he came in. So we are catching the end of that part of John the Baptist in Luke. Now, remember where your hearts are. Remember, as I'm about to speak these out, don't receive them poorly. Let yourselves be open. You lay yourself down. But there's a bit of a meaty passage. So we're in Luke 3, um, verses 7 um, to the end of 3, I think. No, not to the end, till 21. Amazing. Okay. John, who said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do so likewise. Even the tax collectors came to him and asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all their questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but, the, but one who is more powerful than I is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the throng of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herod, oh, sorry, uh, his brother's wife and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> right, we have wonderful Paddy who is joining us back from uh, finishing his placement over in Poolborough. P Paddy, we're so glad you're back. Woohoo! <laughs> 
Yeah, and let's just, uh, I would love to pray for you quickly, Paddy. So if you want to outstretch a, a hand. So Father, we thank you for this um, blessed son of yours. We are so blessed by him and his uh, tenacity to just want to know your word and, and to pursue it. Lord, may the words that he speak to us today, may they be spoken boldly and may we receive them without any barriers to our hearts or to our minds. May we catch the truth that you're speaking to us today. Bless his words with fire. Amen. 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 Well, as Holly said, it is a pleasure to return. I feel like um, after being away for a combination of like different placements of the church, church in Pulborough, um, or being away on paternity leave, it's been a very long time, or just down the road in Washington, it's a pleasure to be back with you today. And, um, and as Holly said, it is quite the adventure we're on as we go through both the, book of Act, both the book of Luke and Acts, word for word, verse for verse. We don't miss anything out, even the, the challenging ones, even the one that makes us feel uncomfortable, and even the ones that contain names that we can't pronounce. <laughs> so be careful when Olashaki messages you saying, do you want to do the reading this week? Like, do your homework first. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. As I speak generally, God, would you be speaking specifically to our hearts as your living word pierces us to our very being. Amen. So the question John the Baptist, John the Baptist poses to the crowds is what then should we do? What then should we do? I think we should ask ourselves the same question, but somewhat break the rules. I'll give you the answer. Choose life. Choose life. And um, in case this might be our first time of meeting, this is going to be um, a terrible first impressions, and it's going to um, give you very much the wrong impression of who I am and my interests. But as, as I was mulling over this passage, what it reminded me of was when I was a teenager in the early 2000s, um, I would waste some of my time playing video games. And at one point, a video game came out, which is like a role-playing game. And typical, you embodied this character who's known as a hero, and you would go around wielding your sword slashing things and fulfilling all these quests and stuff. But what was unique about this game in particular was what the developers would coin as alignment, in which, which you could guide how your character was aligned towards either good or evil. Essentially, good deeds, somehow within how the computer games work, earned you good points, which gave you positive alignment. And then vice versa, if you did bad things, you got bad points, and that produced evil or negative alignment. But what struck me and what, why I remembered it was because as you, as you chose to exercise either virtue and goodness and kindness, or rather give in to the temptations of evil and, and violence, your character's countenance would change. Okay. So as you, as you went about on your quests or just like exploring the world and interacting with these 
I don't even know the terminology. I'm like in, out of my depth, talking about video games, let alone computers. But as he went around, like exploring the world and interacting with these other characters, so the game simulated. If you exercise kindness and service, or maybe even bravery, you'd find that your character like developed this warm glow about him, and it's like the, even the colors of his clothes would change, and they'd be like warm and and bold, like red and yellow and greens. And all the little computer-simulated characters would want to talk to you, and they'd kind of like be welcoming to you and be kind in return. But on the other hand, when you were evil or bad, what would happen to your character was they would progressively get darker. Their clothes would be black and gray. They'd even, the, the developers designed in such a way where it was like uh, this stench came off your character with like little waves. However, they portray that without you smelling it. And the other little computer game characters would like run away from you as you got close. You were unattractive, and eventually the pinnacle of that was you would grow little horns out of your forehead. And so these developers, they designed an outward and physical expression of how one's internal nature became rotten or corrupted. Or I love the phrasing that C.S. Lewis uses in some of his fiction. He talks about them growing bent. And I suggest that this isn't merely fiction. And I, nor do I think that these developers were trying to, to create some sort of interactive allegory for you to live in. But rather, it was like a helpful reminder. Just as John the Baptist, when he, when he spoke to these crowds, I believe, and I'm, I'm going to suggest to us, he was trying to emphasize that who we are is formed by both what we do and who we are is also, also forms what we do. Inside, who we are is formed by what we do and it forms what we do. Because all too often, I've heard over my years, other Christians say, like, no, no, it's not about what you do, it's, it's all about who you are. But always that comes with it, this undertone of, it's not about what you do at all. It's all about who you are, because what you do is inconsequential to, to your identity as a child of God. What you do is inconsequential to, to your witness of who God is and your proclamation of the gospel itself. And I think that's an error that we can quite easily slip into when we focus so exclusively on the gracious nature of God that we forget about everything else that makes up who God is. And we forget about everything else that he calls us to. And so in that state of, people like to describe it as hyper-grace, we, we forget about the need for confession or repentance. We forget about the need for actually striving after godliness and, and purity in our lives, like even in our businesses. And we avoid the discomfort of talking about that dirty S-word of sin, and rather, we just focus on the fact, no, no, we're forgiven. We don't need to talk about it at all. But again, I think this passage reminds us that, that John the Baptist is trying to emphasize that who we are is formed by what we do. It's not entirely defined by, but it is formed by what we do. And in turn, it forms what we do. That's why as a church, I love the fact that one of our values is revival starts with me. 
It reminds us of this responsibility we have. And it's for that reason why we go to great lengths to remind us that our worship isn't to be confined to between 90 minutes and two hours on a Sunday, but rather our worship is our entire lives. So our worship can come with us as we commute on the train to work or in our cars. Our worship goes with us as we're walking the dog. That's why we want you to like devour the scriptures. That's why we want you to seek and nurture godly community. That's why we are encouraging you to join us on like weekday mornings in the office. Because we thought, you know what, a January, a month of devoted to prayer wasn't enough, so we're going to do it for a second month as well. And then in a few weeks, we're going to, along with the whole body of Christ, we're going to spend 40 days in this season of preparation during Lent, in which many of us will choose to engage in these practices of prayer and fasting or however else that might take form. Because what we do is important. Because our desire is to be a community gathered around God. Gathered around His presence, not merely our preferences. And actually, in many ways, we're going to be confronted with something that doesn't look the same as us. And our desire is to be conformed to that image and not our own. It was mentioned a few weeks ago, this phrase that I can't really get out of my head, but... He said, when we encounter Jesus, we're confronted with the crossroads of decision. And to me, that has been a a vivid, stark image stuck in my head. We're confronted with the crossroads of decision. Ultimately, will we choose Jesus? Will we choose his ways? Will we choose submitting to, to him and his authority? Or will we choose our own way? So when we read this passage, it's not merely historical nostalgia looking on, but I want to remind us that actually, no, we are the crowds. We are the religious, we are the tax collectors, we're the soldiers. We're confronted with John bringing this downright offensive message that disrupts us to our core, and we must ask the question, what then should we do? I think it's also beneficial to us. What then should we do? Because if we're really honest, following our own ways hasn't really worked out too well for us. That's why we can sing with so much gratitude and praise because we realized all that Jesus has done for us because following our own ways wasn't working out too well. And following him is so much better. And when you look back through the biblical narrative, time and time again, you find these examples of where people are confronted with a decision. They're confronted with a decision. Will I choose God or will I choose myself, my own ways? And right from the beginning in Genesis, you find even in chapter 3, there is the choice between the forbidden tree and the fruit that it bears or rather all the other trees in the garden. (laughs) It wasn't like one and one. It was like one or an infinite number of trees. Or you continue on a few chapters later, and from chapter 12, you get the story of Abram and, and Abraham. 
what you find is Abram is confronted with the decision to make of will he choose the invitation of God and his blessing, promise of descendants, promise of purpose, or rather will he choose familiarity and comfort? I love the story when you trace through Abraham's life because time and time again it's the choice of will you trust in God and his promises and his provision or will you trust in your own efforts and ingenuity? Before you continue on, you find, I love this passage in, in Deuteronomy towards the end of the book in chapter 30. Moses is coming to the end of his discourse probably red in the face, veins popping. He says, see, I set before you today life and death. And again, it begs the question, every day we are confronted with the same decision as Jesus presents in front of us, life and death, what will we choose? Because we are confronted with that decision with our eyes wide open to the consequences of both just as Moses laid out the consequences of both, just as John the Baptist lays out the consequences of both. Will we choose life or death? As I said, I've, I love this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But the context of it is Deuteronomy, uh, for you Bible nerds, you love the fact Deuteronomy just means second law, but rather the second telling of the law because Moses is telling it to a people who weren't present initially at Mount Sinai. It's to a people who weren't present in the exodus out of Egypt. They don't have a memory of how bad their lives were as slaves. But also he's speaking to a people who stand on the precipice of entering into the promised land. And I want to remind us that actually we too are perpetually standing on this precipice of the promised land. That was quite a tongue twister at 9 a.m. with all those peas. And that's not merely your standard evangelical like alliteration with peas. But it's a reminder that we are people who are perpetually standing on the precipice of the promised land. <laughs> I'll be testing you on the way out. But our promised land isn't to like enter into Fakem or south into Finden. Our promised land is for <laughs> our promised land is for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the promised land that we stand on the edge of that is promised to us. And over the last ten years, we've articulated that here at Chanctonbury as as our vision of 2033 of like this is what it would look like. When God's kingdom comes, and in reality, this isn't like a far distant dream. Actually, we continue to see it on a daily basis. We see little glimpses of it. We see glimpses of where God pours out his, his glory in greater and greater measure. So remind us, we are people who stand on the edge of entering into his promised land. Just as Moses and God's people did back in the wilderness, we still do today. So we're confronted with that decision of what will we choose, life or death? We're biased. We say choose life.
choose God, choose his ways, choose submitting to, to his authority. Like choose living your life according to the law. And by all the standards of today, they say, no, no, that's, like, that's too restrictive, that's too controlling. I don't want to be restrained. I want freedom to be whatever I want to be. But actually, that's not freedom at all. And so in God's invitation, in Christ, we find the great invitation to true freedom, not tr freedom from something, but rather freedom towards, freedom towards him, freedom towards true life. And so when Moses kind of began his great discourse in Deuteronomy, he said in chapter 4, he said, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. He said, follow them so that you may live. So that you may live. And this isn't a must, but it's perpetually an invitation to the good stuff. It's an invitation to eternal life. It's an invitation to life in all of its abundance. An invitation to the true freedom, which at the core of our beings, that's what we desire and crave. Maybe we might say, but yeah, but what about all that talk about axes and trees into the fire and a winnowing fork? It's no good just kind of like brushing over it. And there's, a, there's an age-old debate about like, is God's judgment active or passive? Is it just passive because, you know, God allows sin to take its natural course? And essentially, our sin is, is judgment in and of itself and punishment by itself. Because sin separates us from the source of life, therefore sin is the judgment. Yes? Or rather, is, is it that God actively exercises his judgment and punishes offenses to his holiness? And you look through scripture and it's, yes. Because the Bible does support both even in the New Testament. And it finishes with loving Jesus, my best friend, as the one exercising it. But it reminds us that, that it both shows us the self-destructive nature of our sin when we walk apart from God, but it also shows us that sin is bad enough that it deserves to be punished. And maybe despite any theological gymnastics that we try and like, go through to make it more palatable, you do have to kind of find a way to sleep at night knowing that one day we will be held accountable for what we did with all the mercy and grace God afforded to us. And it leads back to this decision of, will I choose life? Life in all of its abundance, life in all its beauty and glory with God the Father or will I choose death apart from him? Because John the Baptist, he stands in front of this crowd and he's presenting them with their past, present, and future. I would suggest he's saying, you know what, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Because who you are is always formed by, by what you do. Who you are is formed by the life that you live. And he presents this, this contrast. He says, are you going to be a brood of vipers you ever, has anyone ever called you that as like an insult? 
I said to the 9 a.m., maybe I might start doing that, but that's going to directly go against everything that we're trying to preach today. <laughs> are you going to be a brood of vipers, or rather, are you going to be the children of Abraham? Put it quite simply, like, what does it mean to be a brood of vipers? Vipers, it's not an exclusive breed of snake, it just means any old snake, which represents Satan, the primeval opponent and opposition to God. If you're not for God, you're against him. It's the way biblical logic works. But on the other hand, he says, you know, or you can be children of God, children of Abraham, with the chosen people of God, fulfillment of God's faithful promises. I think it's important as we actually dive into to what that would mean, we dive into the story of Abraham, or starts as Abram. Because Abram was, again, starting from Genesis 12 going on, Abram was called out of all comfort and familiarity. Genesis 12, verse 1. God says, go, like, leave behind essentially his family, his country, and his culture. Like, are we willing to leave behind all of that? Maybe some of us are, but like some of us have, As the story unfolds, God leads Abram and Sarai west, where they resided in Mesopotamia. He leads them west towards what will come to be known as Israel. And he gives them new names. So they are known as Abraham and Sarah. No longer are they known by their, their old names from their old culture, but a new one. And it's supposed to stir up this parallel to the story of Adam and Eve in which they are cast out of the garden and they are sent east where they lose their sense of identity and their promises but in the story of Abraham they gain this new identity from God along with these new promises and it's from their sacrifice from all that seemed unlikely that God then makes a great nation where Abraham is promised descendants and God does this for a purpose, and she says, you know what? You will be blessed so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And again, kind of jumping back and forth. Even in Deuteronomy, when Moses lays out the options we have, he says, you know what? If we, if we follow God, we will be the ones who the world comes to. How often do, does the church always go to the world? Like, shouldn't it be the other way around? We are the ones who are walking in line with the creator of the universe. Shouldn't we be the ones in who the world comes to for, for innovation? And I tell this story because I would suggest that John the Baptist stands in front of this Jewish audience and reminding them of this is your heritage. This is who you are supposed to be. And when we look through the narrative of the Bible, you read it and think, this is actually who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the chosen people of God who stand out and are blessings to the world because of who blesses us. But I think part of the challenge, particularly of Abraham's story, is of this idea of leaving and going. Because you can never leave somewhere 
You can never go somewhere new without leaving somewhere old. Does that make sense? Sometimes, sometimes that moment of like, it's kind of pointing out the obvious, buddy. But I think sometimes we forget that with how we actually live our lives. Because we need the leaving to actually get the going somewhere new. We need to disrupt ourselves. We need to intentionally inconvenience ourselves and leave behind everything which is keeping us connected or tethered to that old life. Not just for the sake of it, not just for the sake of like self-punishment, but it's because we have this great invitation to, to new life. It's in Christ. The invitation is to new life or recreation. As Paul would write to the Corinthians, they say, no, if anyone is new Christ, in, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation because the old has gone and the new has come. But the old has gone. So yeah, the invitation is to, to life. But the invitation is also to, to death and crucifixion. A few weeks ago, we, we were reading and unpacking the story of Simeon and Anna. And Simeon would, would prophesy to, to Mary and say, you know what, your child is destined for the falling of many. Because on the other side of, of death and crucifixion, that is where we find resurrection life. Simeon said to Mary, your child is destined for the falling and rising of many. So it begs the question, what then should we do? What then should we do? John the Baptist says, you know what, bear fruit is worthy of repentance. If we use this idea of leaving and going, we should leave behind all our selfishness and go into generosity. We must leave behind the me and I and go into we and us. What if we left behind all dishonesty and we went into integrity and righteousness? What if we left behind slander and talking badly about people and we went into honor? if we left behind immorality and went into purity? Just a long list. I think you can fill in the, this is like homework for you. Fill in the, leave behind what? Go into what? Just that, leave behind the past and go into his promises. The great thing is, John was pretty clear that he wasn't the Messiah. He went to great lengths to remind people. He said, you know what, the one who's coming after me, he is far more powerful. And he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the beauty is, as much as you know, you're taught to, to engage with the Bible theologically and enter into the, into the context, but we also have to remember that the context was before the cross, and now we live the other side of the cross. And so amidst all these calls to merely bear fruits worthy of repentance, we're reminded that God is the one who raises these dead, lifeless stones into individuals who are able to bear fruits worthy of repentance. He's the one who raises these dead, lifeless stones into children of Abraham who will bless the world. 
Do you believe that? One who is coming after John is far more powerful and he baptizes in the Holy Spirit and with fire. So I've spent the last month or quite a few months of the last year in a more Catholic setting. And so when I thought when I was coming back here and I started talking about the Holy Spirit and fire, there'd be much more excitement. Uh, James, I thought we had a charismatic, Pentecostal, <laughs> spiritual tradition going on here. <laughs> this is it. Like the, without being a downer about it, you look around and the world's a bit of a mess. I only have to look as, like, as far as the mirror and I see the mess. It's like we, we need help. <laughs> We need the Holy Spirit. We need his fire to purify us. Okay? And it's there where we encounter Jesus, where we have that great invitation of, I can either go with you and be cleansed, purified, transformed, redeemed. I can encounter your joy and righteousness, your love. I can encounter a fresh revelation of your hope. And it's there that I realize the blessing that you pour out, and I realize how actually you will use me, this dead, lifeless stone, and be a blessing to the world. Do we believe it? Yeah, because it's there where we encounter life in all of its abundance. And it's there when we encounter and are renewed and transformed by his Holy Spirit and his fire that we can bear fruits worthy of repentance. We can bless the world. These are lovely ideas, but wouldn't you rather actually encounter his spirit, be purified by his fire? Shall we stand? So as we continue our worship, I'm going to invite say invite some of you, whoever wants to come. Say, look, this is the great invitation we have, not merely to encounter the living God, but also to to leave behind all that isn't of him and rather step into everything that is of him. Does that make sense? So Liam and the guys, they're going to lead us in worship. But I just encourage you, if you guys that in any way struck a chord? You actually say, you know what, there is plenty of things I want to leave behind. I want to be severed from that connection to an old life and I want to walk into the newness of life, achieved, paid for, won by Jesus Christ. We would love to stand with you. Okay? Old friend of mine taught me what has become my most valuable form of prayer, and I'm probably a broken record. It's quite simply praying with your palms down, saying, God, I don't want to hold this anymore, whatever it is, and you let go of it. And God, in his gracious nature, he is the one that then blesses you and fills your life with his goodness. Does that sound all right? So if that resonates and you would like us to to stand with you in prayer, we're not going to ask for a life story. 
But quite simply, if it's going to help you by physically moving out of your not quite pews, semi-comfortable chairs, and coming down the front, we'd love to stand with you as you leave something behind and you go into all God has promised for you. All right? So some of you make your way down to the front to receive and do work with God. I just encourage others of us who are feel comfortable serving as our ministry team to come and just stand with them. Just encourage God, encourage the Holy Spirit to keep doing what it's doing. To God, we thank you for being exactly who you are. You are where our help comes from, maker of heaven and earth. Almighty God, you're our heavenly Father. We thank you for your goodness and your love that you continue to pour out on us. So God, baptize us by your spirit afresh today. May your fire continue to purify us. Purify our hearts and our minds. Purify our bodies as your hand of healing rests upon us. We are renewed.